Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. And welcome to One Sweet Dream. Today's episode is an interview series episode, an interview that I did with writer Joe Hagen, author of the terrific Jan Wenner biography, Sticky Fingers, and co-host of the podcast Inside the Hive. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, Jan Wenner is the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, which obviously has huge implications to the Beatles story, given the influence it has had in shaping the Beatles narrative as we know it. In fact, much of this narrative stems directly from Wenner's seminal 1970 interview with John Lennon, Lennon Remembers, which not only became the definitive take on the breakup, but also profoundly shaped our view of the individual members and the band's interpersonal dynamics. So given Rolling Stone's significance to the Beatles story, I was keen to talk to Wenner's biographer and get some insight into the man his motivations, and his relationships with Lennon, Ono, and the other person significantly impacted by Wenner's partisanship, Paul McCartney. But while this part of the story is obviously of great interest to me, I also wanted to talk to Joe about something more fun, his newfound love and appreciation of the Beatles' individual early solo work that has been ignited by the Get Back movie, which I'm always happy to dive into. Now, before we jump in, I wanted to flag a couple of things. First, Harrison and Starr aren't a part of this discussion, simply because Wenner never brought them up in his discussion with Hagen, so there really was nothing to say. Second, I don't blame Lennon for the staying power of the Lennon Remembers narrative, because although John did use Rolling Stone to promote his agenda and his version of events of the breakup, he also quickly rejected and walked back a lot of what he said in Lennon Remembers, most significantly, the things he said about McCartney. The interview was done at a moment in time when he was extremely emotional and vulnerable and perhaps unwisely chose to share his wounded thoughts with the wrong outlet. But in typical Lennon fashion, he moved on, did an about face and corrected a lot of what he said. And he did this repeatedly in public, in the media. Instead, it was Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine that continued to promote and propagate the Lennon Remembers narrative for a number of reasons that we'll get into, including Wenner's own guilt, but perhaps more importantly, 
because this interview was so foundational to his magazine's own mythology. So truth be damned, he continued to promote it. Third, Joe and I spoke about a few additional elements offline after we finished recording. Most importantly, perhaps, that McCartney admitted that he was very hurt by the Lennon Remembers interview. And uh, one can imagine if he was hurt by that, how hurt he was that it continued for the next 50 years. Anyway, Joe interviewed McCartney for the book and McCartney was determined to represent himself in this situation and tell his side of the story. I will discuss a couple of additional pieces of information about their conversation at the end of this episode. I think that's all the background we need. So without further ado, let's jump in to this interview. This is Joe Hagen. Here we go. So great to have you here, Joe. I'm so looking forward to chatting today because, um, well, the thing about my podcast is that um, this whole podcast is about looking at the Beatles story through a new lens. And so when we're thinking about like, well, how do we revisit some of the stories of the Beatles? The first place I wanted to focus on was the breakup period because so much of the mythology around the Beatles seem to stem from this period. And obviously the Lennon Remembers interview is so incredibly important to that. It's unbelievable how much influence Wenner wielded over these these men's reputations and, you know, images. Yeah, well, that would ended up being a big part of the story for me. Okay, so you wrote uh, Jan Wenner's biography. Why were you chosen? Why did you want to do it? Well, it wasn't my idea. I wasn't thinking of it when it kind of came into my universe. Um, I met Jan Winter randomly mm-hmm. in a small village in upstate New York where I happened to have, I happened to live and where I had recently moved. And uh, I was sitting in a cafe. He came walking in. He was getting uh, some coffee and like a gallon of milk or something at this little yeah. uh, this little place. And I knew who he was and introduced myself to him because I, I recognized him being in the magazine business. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another. It turns out he had recently bought a big estate near me and he invited me to his house and I hung out with him around his swimming pool and met his, you know, family and, um, and Annie Leibovitz who was at his house when I went over, it was like a, a really bizarre, surreal experience for me just to suddenly Uh, you know, fall into it. And uh, one thing led to another. He asked me uh, whether I was interested in writing his biography because I had inquired about it a couple of times. I said, what's going on? You got to write a memoir. Is there a biography involved? Because he knows all these people. Yeah. And uh, it turns out there had been some misfires, some false starts trying to do a biography with other people. And so I ended up, you know, agreeing to do it, but under a lot of circumstances, that we had to agree to one of which was that it would be an independent book and it would not be his book. Uh, it would be a biography, like a real biography. So, um, so yeah, I kind of, you know, fell into it and as far as I'm concerned, won the lottery. Yeah. yeah. So why did he invite you? Is, is that representative of the way that Jan is charming and invites, like, why did he invite you over to his place? He didn't know anyone in the area. He had bought this estate. It's near Bard college where one of his sons went to college. And they, I think he and his partner, uh, Matt, had this vision of living in the country. Their neighbor was Bryce Martin, a painter, Bryce Martin, um, who was a friend of theirs since the 70s. And so they were in the 
on the estate adjoining his. And so they, I think they thought, let's go be, you know, country gentlemen and buy this big estate. And he, this is like, you know, the fourth of his five estates or something, you know, he had, he had a lot of property. So he didn't really know anyone. And here I was from New York magazine. So he was sparked his, you know, interest in like, Oh, come over and we'll know somebody. Right. And there was one other guest and it was his veterinarian. So if that should tell you that, you know, he was, um, you know, looking for uh, somebody to hang out with. Frankly. Right. <laughs> and then why did he choose you? Not not that you aren't a wonderful writer, but I assume he knew a lot of writers, you know? Well, it's interesting because, and he had tried uh, to do another, his biography with a Rolling Stone writer, Rich Cohen, before, and it fell apart, mainly because Jan got cold feet uh, about Rich. And uh, there had been one before that, um, uh, with an older guy that, who was also had written for Rolling Stone, who was a contemporary of Jan's. It was actually his age. And that fell apart too. You know, it was luck because he met me. We began to hang out a little bit and it happened, so happened. I was at New York Magazine at the time and I was having some success there. And I had gotten this huge exclusive interview with Hillary Clinton uh, for the cover of New York Magazine. And I remember he was you know, impressed by that. And he thought, oh, well, if he's good enough for Hillary Clinton, then clearly he's good enough for me. And that was sort of his thinking. You know, that's how his mind works, too. So um, so that's how that worked. Yeah. And why did you want to do it? Well, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it right off the bat. I mean, I love rock and roll. And I, you know, it so happens that I you know, moved to New York many years ago to be an intern at Rolling Stone magazine. That's how oh, I ended up moving okay. to New York. So, so I had this whole prehistory of, you know, being interested in rock and roll, being in the magazine business, having a little bit of connection with Rolling Stone magazine. And, but, you know, I was a little scared about whether it was going to work out with him because you'd had these other people. Yeah. Who, yeah, yeah, did yeah. Not, and it was not clear why it didn't work out, but I called one of these people and I asked, Hey, what's the deal? And, they were like, be, be wary, you know, because he, it's a great opportunity, but he's a little mercurial. Right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, was and he? so he was, yeah. But I, <laughs> I went into it with eyes wide open and yeah. I realized if I handle this right, it could be great. And the opportunity of a lifetime. And by the way, the big attraction was his archive. It was tremendous. Like this yes. unbelievable archive of letters and correspondence and all kinds of stuff, just like the kingdom of rock and roll for the last 50 years. And I thought I would love to get in there, you know? It's interesting. I mean, I understand why you'd want to do it, but it's interesting that he didn't have some longtime good friends that were writers that were admirers of his, one would think. Like that's what John Lennon would do is he would find somebody that, you know, that loved him uh, to do a very positive interview. And it's amazing that Jan didn't do that, you know? Well, I think it, you know, at first he was trying to convince me to do the book as an as told to, or as a, I should say, an authorized biography. He wanted to have control. And the less, as he pushed for that, I began to kind of recede. And I told him no yeah. at first. My first Good answer for you. to Good him. For you. Yeah. After yeah. going, you know, after talking to him a little bit, I realized it was going to be like very difficult to go into places that made him uncomfortable. And so I told him, no, I can't do this. And then he finally said, well, what will it take for you to do it and put it on paper and let's get some lawyers involved and we'll work out a contract 
that makes you feel like you have what you need. And we did. It took like a month to go back and forth, back and forth. And we had a lot of meetings about it. And it was stressful, I'll say. But then once I, once I, the rules of the road were established, I felt like, okay, I can write the book I want to write. And it's just going to be about a little bit walking a tightrope with him, getting him to stay on board, not freaking him out and just go down the road and, and then interview everybody under creation along right. the way, you know? Uh-huh. So did, did he like the, the book in the end? He did not like the book in the end. No, he, um, he was infuriated by the book and uh, it sparked a whole, you know, a conflict in the press and the New York times came and did a whole story about how he rejected the book and he was pissed and, and I got it because, you know, his life was sort of splayed out in a real kind of, you know, uh, transparent way that, and there were things in it about his sexuality and his marriage and things that, you know, got under his skin and he didn't like the way it was done. But uh, I was thrilled with how it came out and happy. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. it was part of the price of doing things. And I, I had, anybody could have predicted that he would have reacted poorly just knowing him. You know, he, well, of course, that's what I mean about I'm surprised that he didn't choose somebody who was extremely sympathetic. To me, that actually reflects that he probably didn't have anyone that would be willing well, to do that. Well, there was that. I mean, there and, and everybody, he was a little bit isolated, I think, from writers. You know, for years he's been, for the last many years, he has not been, uh, you know, deeply involved directed mm-hmm. with writers mm-hmm. he had his own editors doing all the kind of sausage making in the magazine yeah, yeah, you know? he, yeah. and he was circulating now in a much higher plane yeah the media mogul world and the hamptons yeah. and stuff and so you know he um he might have been a little naive and his partner was against the whole project and told him not to do it so he was obviously maybe more aware that of how unaware jan was wow um, that's shocking but so, yes you know, you, you'd think he would have been a lot more savvy having done so many articles that were not positive on people. But- well, that's the irony of the whole thing. Is And I will say this, is that it took me a while to get to this. I did, you know, it took me four years to write this and research it. And uh, But I wrote the book as kind of a one long Rolling Stone article. I wanted it to, or a series of Rolling Stone. I wanted it to have the flavor and the tone of like the classic 70s Rolling Stone articles, you know, including that it's a little too long, but like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be rich and new journalistic and have, and it's an homage to Rolling Stone. And it's the way Rolling Stone would have treated him had he not owned the magazine. Yes, that's what I mean. That that's yes. what I feel like he got in the end, and he should have known because he did this to everyone. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, did, and did I you was in- hoping maybe I had a tiny little bit of hope that he would appreciate that, but he's not at a stage in his life where he appreciates that kind of thing. So all right, did you like him? Yeah, I mean, I always he's charming. He definitely can be charming when he wants to be. He's also like a little absurd in the way people of that kind of wealth and power after a long time of having wealth and power and circulating in a world that's a little bit detached from reality, they become a little absurd, right? And, and unaware of his own ego. And he's always, he's got a reputation as having a giant ego and being narcissistic. And so, you know, I'm used to being around people like that or adjacent to that from being in my business and writing about profiles of powerful people and 
people in Hollywood and so forth. But, you know, his was to be that close to somebody like that for that long was just really um, uh, fascinating. And so, you know, my fascination and uh, ability to kind of uh, look into his personality and what motivated him for like a couple of years of interviewing him uh, really you know, it was an unprecedented thing for me. It was pretty fascinating. What well, what good thing did you learn from him or from studying him? Oh man, I mean, he, um, well, he was a great editor. He had amazing chutzpah, you know, mm. like yes. kind of like uh, in the kind that you see in a lot of people who are end up being hugely successful. You know, in our conversation when we were just getting the book off the ground steve jobs's biography had recently come out and that was big in the air and that was um that book uh also sort of showed steve jobs as a protean you know force of nature but also kind of not a a very pleasant guy you Mm -hmm. know he was an unpleasant Mm -hmm. person he could be a jerk right Mm -hmm. and you know jan had some of that where he's got this incredible immense ambition and and force of personality and drive and and from you know in the 60s a real vision and i think into the 70s um i think he became kind of decadent and you know it lost some of his touch right for the culture and for what was going on but but for the time that he had it and that he was in it he just he lived and breathed his creation and that's a special kind of talent you know yeah this is a Beatles podcast. And so obviously, Jan is so connected to the Beatles and the Beatles image and the Beatles reputation. Um, yeah. So let's get into that. Could you tell me about Jan's history with the Beatles? Sure. Well, his kind of introduction to the world of rock and roll really and truly and his kind of, uh, you know, romance with the Beatles began when he saw Hard Day's Night movie theater in Pasadena. He was in, uh, I think, like a summer after high school or, you know, somewhere before he went to Berkeley. And he was immediately smitten with the Beatles. And, you know, like a lot of people his age, right? And that became, it consumed him and he just thought that they were, uh, incredibly charming and cute and they were his age and they were kind of lighting the way for his generation and all the ways we know and so he loved yeah. them um, but he was especially into Lennon John Lennon was the one he gravitated to and you know every teenager of the 60s picked a beetle and that was your right. beetle right yeah. and, and John Lennon was his beetle he liked that he was witty you know he was you know at that time probably cute and, and charming and, and yeah. you know seemed to have um, an awareness of what was going on in these movies. You know, he has this sort of kind of ability to wink at the camera. He does, yes, think, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, not I taking, think yeah. Jan, I'm not taking this that seriously, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, Jan, Jan liked that, you know. He, so he fell in love with the Beatles and becomes a devotee. I, I talked to um, a historian named Aaron Torkelson Weber, and we talked about how incredibly powerful A Hard Day's Night was for creating yeah. the image of the individual Beatles that were not representative, you know? Right. But it sort of created these images that people bought yeah. into, you know? Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's an amazing movie because it's so modern and it's so, yeah, yeah. Um, it cool. really establishes the Beatles as, as like 
you know, in a we're in a post Eisenhower reality now. This is like yeah. we're playing with media. We're aware of media. We have yeah. control of the levers. And, um, so uh, just you know, when I first began doing this book, the first step that I took was I had to write a write a book proposal. And I went to Jan and I said, well, I think the thing I should do is go into the archive. I should pick one slice of your life, one relationship that you had with a major figure yeah. and write about it and put it in the, so the first one I did was John Lennon. That was the first uh, sort of correspondence that I found in Jan's archive and began to study to write a book proposal. It was all about his relationship with Wenner, which is, you know, ends up being a, a version of my book proposal became the opening of the book, right? Because yeah. the opening of the book is, John Wenner, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and John's wife Jane in a movie theater watching Let It Be. Yes. Ironically, yes. You know, let it, the, the very yeah. film that becomes the basis for Get Back, the Peter Jackson film. So, and this is, uh, uh, this, this correspondence was told a tale. At first, I thought it was all these sort of like disparate pieces of correspondence hey here's a postcard how you doing Jan you know where in Spain what are you doing and as I started to piece it together and see what was going on I realized that they had this kind of very symbiotic relationship when Jan started Rolling Stone and that they were a hand-in-glove operation that Jan anything he wanted to promote or talk about Jan would give him as many pages as he wanted in Rolling Stone. And they became, and, and John Lennon and Yoko started to use Rolling Stone as a platform to basically have a narrative in parallel with the Beatles or away from the Beatles, right? To talk about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, John Lennon uses Rolling Stone to kind of help establish that he's on his own track. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the real kind of uh, first... Um, dramatic uh, example of that is when Rolling Stone publishes on the cover the nude photograph of John and Yoko, mm-hmm. which uh, originally had been an album cover but was rejected right. by Capitol. And so, um, and so anyway, that uh, you know, and of course John Lennon's on the cover of the first issue of Rolling Stone magazine. So that is, uh, I talked to people who went to college with Jan and who knew him. And during that time, he gets involved with the Monterey Pop Festival. And while he was involved with Monterey Pop Festival, helping, uh, you know, kind of do PR for it, he becomes, uh, goes into a correspondence with Derek Taylor, who was the publicist for the Beatles right. and was sort of, of you know, one of, the, one of their media men. And that was, ends up being his uh, kind of entree mm-hmm. to Lennon and mm-hmm. to the Beatles yeah, uh, well, when no- he starts Rolling Stone. Yeah, I mean, Derek is a major confidant of John's. Yeah. Like, he's a John guy, right. you know, in That's the Beatles. Right. Right. Yeah. John Whisperer. And, he uh, is a John, and, and he brought in Klein, too, actually, for the record. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and we can get into this uh, whenever you want, but, you know, part two of Jan Wenner's relationship with John and what was yielded in the correspondence uh, was the end of their relationship, which uh, has to do with the end of the Beatles. Um, and of course, the most famous interview probably anybody did with John Lennon, which was Jan Winner's uh, Lennon oh, yeah. Remembers two-part interview. Yeah, yeah. When when Winner met John, do you know what he thought of him? Well, it was interesting that they'd never met to that point because they had been corresponded. They had corresponded. I think they had spoken on the phone yeah. before. 
And so this was a big deal uh, when he came to San Francisco in the spring of 1970. Yep. Um, a lot was going on. The Beatles had just broken up. The Let It Be movie was coming out right at that moment, which is, by the by, why that movie has the reputation it does as yes. being a kind of like negative view of the Beatles breakup, even though it not isn't quite true. Um, it's because it came out right when the Beatles broke up. So right. uh, he comes to town and, you know, I asked Jan all about what were your impressions and, um, you know, he found him, you know, charming and fascinating. Of course, he was hanging on his every word. Yeah. Uh, but he also describes being in a restaurant with him, having lunch, and a fan coming up to John Lennon asking for an autograph, and John Lennon, like, kind of barking at this fan to get away from him, you know, mm -hmm. like sort of savaging this young man, mm -hmm. and Jan being kind of taken aback. But it was at a time when Lennon and Yoko were in the middle of primal scream therapy. Yep. And um, they, he was raw and, uh, you know, this is the period where you're going to start to see, you know, John Lennon with his head shaved. This is a very kind of raw version of, of John Lennon. You don't want to, like, uh, you know, tangle with him during this period. He's a very raw character. And, yeah. um, and he's, you know, he's going to make Plastic Ono Band record, if that tells you anything. You know, that's the album he was yeah making yeah I'm, and, I'm very aware of this period because i spent like two yeah. years working on it yeah right so. so you know for jan it was like he takes him to the offices of rolling stone and kind of shows him off to the staff yeah and it's oh, a big sure. deal for him right and yeah. he's driving him around in a porsche that he yeah. had just bought and he puts john and yoko up in a fancy hotel uh, in san francisco to kind of impress them he's really wanting to impress them and show yeah. that he's of their static stature right and um and th that's and important so, to those two, too, actually. Yes. That was smart. Well, yeah, I think that they related to one another. I don't think Jan, you know, Yoko would send things to Jan, say, hey, I want you to promote this thing that I'm trying to sell or right. you know, give right. me some <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, ink and help me uh, kind of, uh, you know, exploit this, that, that or the other thing that we're doing. And Jan yeah. understood this very well. I mean, he's like, yeah, we, I'm, we're all in business here. Let's. Let's uh, scratch each other's backs. And, but what he wanted out of this meeting was to get John Lennon to agree to do the big post Beatles exit interview. And that was sort of what Jan's, you know, uh, motive was yeah. in, in, in courting them. Right. And of course, I describe in the book at the end, before John leaves, he gives him a copy of the Arthur Janoff book, right? The Primal Scream book. And inside is a, a promise from John Lennon saying, you know, when we're done, uh you know i'll tell you the whole story and so that's what that's the prelude to uh the uh two-part lennon interview that yeah. Rolling Stone. i mean that's that's so interesting because a i think that reflects how much john and yoko used the press they were so smart at using yeah. the press in a way that certainly mccartney wasn't at that time anyways and, um, you know, you talked about John being raw, and this is one of the points that I made in our breakup series, is that there is this view right now that McCartney had this breakdown after the Beatles broke up, but so did John. You know, it's just, he, oh, absolutely. Fr he framed it differently as in this is primal therapy, you know, to deal with my childhood, which I'm sure it was, you know, but it comes 
at a very important time, which is when the Beatles are breaking up. So in other words, both men were having breakdowns in different ways, you know? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think all of them were facing the same essential issue, which is that trying to find out who they were outside the Beatles. That's right. And it's a struggle for all of them. And they, they each express it differently in their albums and in their creative lives after that, um, and towards each other. And, uh, you know, we'll get into this later because, uh, we can talk about it whenever, but I really do believe that even though the Beatles were broken up, they were still talking to each other. Me too. That's, that's my premise is that they never really broke up that the conversation continues between music and. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, my, um, this is leaping out ahead a little bit, but, uh, I'm of the mind that, and I, I kind of have a whole framework of how I look at it. I, you know, when the Beatles broke up, you have uh, Alan Klein had established this new contract with EMI and they, they had a, they still were under contract as the Beatles and that any solo record they made would be split four ways as long mm-hmm. as they were under this contract, which is yeah. why Paul was suing the rest of the Beatles to yeah. get out of that contract. Yeah, yeah. But if you take that period of, when, of the, you know, that they're sort of unofficially still the Beatles under contract yeah. until like 1974, my personal point of view, and I, I feel like it probably dovetails with yours a little bit, is that all the solo records they made up until that time, I would say right up till Band on the Run, are essentially like Beatles records. I think that they are still um, in a Beatles mode. They have not fully found themselves outside of the Beatles, but they're trying, but they're still talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Musically, absolutely, sometimes, absolutely. Sometimes directly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the, in, the, in the lyrics of some songs, as we know. But I, I think it's also got to be pointed out that if you take those records that I'm talking about and you were to sort of cherry pick uh, a double or triple album out of the solo material between 1970 and 1974, that stuff stands up as strongly as, you know, it, it's like the White Album, right? White Album 2. You could just make a White Album 2 because the White Album was critically reviewed in the to- in Rolling Stone. Yep. And Jan Winter wrote the review, but it was all kind of cribbed from David Dalton, who was yep. this other writer. And it, and it was Dalton's idea, which is that the White Album is really like four Beatles out, al- four Beatles albums yep. put into one album, right? It's like four different Beatles with four different kinds of visions of where they want to go. And that's why it has that hodgepodgey kind of uh, vibe to it. And, you know, let it be in that narrative is them trying to get back together right? Get back. Let's yes, be a band together. I, I agree. They were trying again. Yes. Uh, but I, they feel like the, even though they break up and they're no longer playing together and yes, that magic of them playing together is a thing, mm-hmm. but people make too much of the breakup as, uh, because what they ended up doing is it happens right at the dawn of the seventies. And there's already a kind of depressive feeling in the air yeah 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 that's that right. makes everybody downplay the solo records as like we're, we're just disappointed in all of this you know we're we've moved on to james taylor and led zeppelin and joni mitchell we're yeah. we're we're going inward and everything's a little bit gloomy and you know these solo records so i feel like they got short shrift in their time right and so the essence of your podcast or the thesis of it is interesting finding a new view because the fortune of where we stand today, all these year, many years later, the benefit of it yep. is we don't have to be tied to 
the old boomer narrative nope. uh, That's of right. what those solos were, because solo albums were about. Because now when I listen to them, song by song, if I listen to Ram, okay, yeah. and I listen to Plastic Ono Band, and I put those side by side okay that stuff matches up with anything the beatles did it's absolutely it is the beatles absolutely <laughs> so that's why you know when i tweeted the other day and it was a, pissed a lot of people off and it was a little overly provocative probably on my part but i was yeah. like you know i'm starting to think that wings are as good as the beatles well let me amend that and say paul mccartney solo and wings and i would put a cutoff point at 74 with band on the run all that material from McCartney, Ram, up through Band on the Run, and Plastic Ono Band, and Imagine, and All Things Must Pass. Yeah. That stuff is, uh, I still consider it Beatles music. Yeah, yeah. They still had the magic. And that yeah. it's just their and, distinct and, personalities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, but those distinct personalities were also on the White Album, and we still called it the Beatles record, right? Oh, yeah. oh, I completely agree. And I'm always surprised when people say they're glad that the Beatles broke up then, because it's kind of like, no, they had a lot still in the can. Like, they could have created together, and maybe it's good they created separately. I love all those albums, but yeah, yeah. my point of view is that John's declaration of, of divorce, wanting a divorce in 69, is that it was a gauntlet thrown. It was a negotiation. You know, I, I think that John creating his own identity with Yoko was, I don't think it was necessarily to walk away from the Beatles. I think it was a power thing to be stronger within, against McCartney. Uh, and, you know, Klein, like all of these things, they were all kind of um, power moves. But the Lennon-McCartney partnership is so pivotal and they're always reacting. So, you know, John going off and signing Klein is is partly to have his own guy in his corner and let's talk about get back later but you know i think this view is that john just went off and was disconnected from the beatles and our analysis shows how deeply bonded and how reactive he is constantly to paul and paul to john you know well right and i think to your point about where he was in the partnership especially when we watch get back and think about that period and especially if you read in, in conjunction, read the interview with Winter that he did, because Yoko was right next to him while he does that interview. She is building him up yes. and trying to give, because he's incredibly insecure at that point, because he's also got drug addiction issues right in that moment. You know, he's, That's important though. Yeah, big time. And there's a moment in the uh, interview with Winter that I write about it in the book, which is... Um, you know, she is saying to Winner, Yoko, that, um, you know, the Beatles have been just holding John back. You know, yes. he's going to make something even better than that, yes. you know, better than Sergeant Peppers. And, uh, you know, because he doesn't need all of this. And in a way that she was helping kind of like give him some spine because he was losing uh, his, you know, I think some of his confidence and his creative powers one could argue were not as strong as Paul's in this period because Paul is really writing so much of Let It Be and Abbey Road. I mean, he's doing a lot of the strength. And on the other hand, I understand full well that that John was an incredible editor to Paul, and 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 that tension was the Beatles that we love. But well, well Paul was a great. It wasn't producer. everything. Yes, yes, he was a great producer. And you know, if you listen to Plastic Ono Band. 
it's a fantastic record and it's got Ringo on drums. It is like a very Beatlesy. It's it is the Beatles, but it's also very sparsely arranged and basically not arranged, right? Yeah, it's yeah. very uh it's like a garage album basically. Yeah, they just yeah. hit record and they're playing some instruments. I mean, it's, it doesn't have any of Paul's. And maybe John would argue because he didn't have it that he didn't need it and this is more real yeah i'm getting yeah. real i don't need the beatles that's you know right. it's just me and yoko yeah. and screw the world right yeah. and that's his point of view but yeah. that he had to tell himself that yeah. right but but you know flash forward a couple of years and he's making bad records and he's lost his some of the thread of his creative powers and it didn't work out exactly as he as it might have uh, that some of that could have been the drugs but um you know we could argue up and down all about that but you know by the time you get to like walls and bridges i just don't feel like he's writing albums as strong as paul you know well i do love that album but but i agree there's kind of a decline but i want to go back to a couple of things so first of all you sure. talk about yoko uh building john up in lennon remembers and i think that this has kind of been underplayed in the Beatles story how important yoko is i think part of yoko's genius is her ability to frame narratives and she was really instrumental for creating the view of John Lennon in, in the early seventies. Yeah. Um, she was controlling uh, his, his publicity. I mean, she, a lot, here's the thing. If you look at what was going on at Rolling Stone and the way they interacted, there was a correspondent in London who was uh, interacting with John and Yoko uh, on a, you know, weekly basis basically. And then uh, feeding it back to Jan. Right. And, and it was Yoko who was doing a lot of the, you know, um, communications, right? She was the one who was interfacing with Rolling Stone uh, in the London office. Uh, I want to remember that person's name, and I'm going to in a moment. But, you know, so, yeah, she was she had a lot to do with um, kind of uh, acting as his manager in that way. It was uh, Jonathan Cott, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, who did the interview with John, John in 1968. Uh, you're right. And he also did the 1980 interview and, you know, the final uh, interview. So, um, and Jonathan Cott was very close to the Beatles and he's written all about it. But if you look at his interactions, a lot of them were with Yoko. Yeah. Um, so yeah. in any event, I think the Get Back um, documentary was interesting because people are sort of flummoxed by what Yoko's doing in that film and like what her role is there. And I just think she's there to give John uh, confidence. That's right. That's right. And, and she's and armor. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she kind of creates a atmosphere around him that makes him feel secure. And, but you know, as you can see in the film, in the first episode, he's not, he's out of it, you know, and doesn't seem, completely engaged uh, when I was watching it. I just felt like he seemed remote. And maybe he was remote because he was on heroin, or maybe he was remote because he was sort of gauging the scene for before he... Because by the time you get back, when they move back to... from Twickenham, to, and I know I'm talking as if everybody knows or he knows what I'm talking about, but first episode... Everybody who denoted. listens knows this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so by the time you get to, uh, you know, back to Apple headquarters and into the basement uh john has changed you know he is more engaged and um i don't know why that is but you know uh it seems that um and then you really get to see 
what he brings to the table in yes. the creative process too. Yes. Um, well, really you beautiful. know, I, I talked to Amy Mann about this and, you know, John, yes, he's gauging, he's, he's been doing heroin. So he's a little out of it at the beginning, but he says that he almost loses himself if he's not with the Beatles. So I think that the longer he's with them, the more he sort of engages and John loves cameras too. You know, I think the more he gets into it and yeah. Paul is pretty supportive of John, uh, you know, of yeah. John. So I think he just warms up and all of a sudden gets back into the groove and remembers, you know, this is who I am and oh yeah. yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So yeah. You know, I think it's good for him actually, but I, like I found John incredibly charming and with it in part one, but I didn't expect him to be any different in this period. But, but yes, Yoko is there as armor, as support for John. Also, I do believe he's playing a little bit of games with Paul. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a wild card. Well, yeah. And she's also a bit of a wedge. Like, I think that if Yoko's not there, that John probably bonds so much with Paul that he loses some of his power, probably. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. so... So I want to ask you something about that that initial um, scene where John is in San Francisco. Like, it's really interesting. So they go and watch Let It Be together. And yeah. in your account of it, you talk about, like, John and Yoko just bawling, like everybody bawling throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say it was just like the view of seeing the Beatles and seeing Paul. And did anybody say that or is just that your take? No, both uh, Jan and Jane, who I interviewed separately, both... Uh, remembered this. I mean, this basically came from me. I asked, I interviewed Yoko for this. Okay. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, she's, I, her thing was she didn't remember whether they cried or not. Um, but, you know, both Jan and Jane were the wide-eyed fans yes. sitting in there. So they're yes. noticing everything, right? Yes, yes, yes. Whereas John and Yoko are kind of in their own world at yeah, this yeah. stage. And, and I think also you know, the Beatles had just broken up. I think he had seen some cut of this film, but hadn't seen it in a while. And I think ex being exposed to it and being in the state he was in from having doing the primal scream, it was just, I'm sure it just hit him. And this was, this was Jan's take that they really, it hit them that the Beatles were over, you know, that this is, and what, that, what was lost when he saw them playing together, they on the roof of Apple, that, that beautiful, unbelievable scene. Right. Uh, I mean, oh my God. I, I would cry watching it too. So <laughs> I don't even need to be John Lennon, but you know, it's right, like right. a, it's a powerful thing. And I think it was probably still very raw for him. What was going on? I mean, his whole life was changing. Um, yeah. They were going yeah. in a different direction. And, uh, and, you know, even though at the end of a plastic Ono band, he's saying, you know, he doesn't need Elvis. He doesn't need the Beatles. Uh, you know, it wasn't as clean as all that. You know, he was trying to convince himself that. That's right. Well, that's right. And then Walls and Bridges, he comes back with number nine, Dream, which is, you know, I yeah. think he reverses himself. And, you know, this is a period of closeness with Paul and during this period, and he reverses himself. And he talks about how much he loves, like in 71, 72, he talks about how much he loved the Beatles and he doesn't understand why he burnt them down. You know, it's kind of like he didn't even know why he did what he did, but it certainly wasn't from a lack of love. 
you know, it, it, like that wasn't the issue that he lost interest. John loved the Beatles. So. Yeah. Another thing that was in Jan Wenner's archive when I uh, was, you know, first of all, I didn't even talk about this part, which is that after the interview with John that appeared in Rolling Stone, uh, it was such an international sensation. It was like a big deal, that interview, because it was so long, it was so in-depth, the nasty things John was saying about Paul and about George Martin and just his kind of uh, the vitriolic um, stuff he was saying about the Beatles. You know, and it's obviously John trying to distance himself from the Beatles and he's he's being very emphatic in that interview. Well, it was such a big deal that uh, Jan decided, oh, we need to turn this interview into a book. It needs to be a book. Lennon remembers it would be a big book. And uh, so he, at that moment, was starting a publishing imprint and he thought this will be a great hit for us. But what he uh, forgot was that he and John Lennon had made a deal about this interview because John knew this was a one-shot deal, this interview. He wanted it to come out, make a big statement, and then have it wash away, right? Um, and he had made a deal with Jan that I own this interview. You know, John Lennon, this is my interview. You will use it in Rolling Stone, and then afterwards it will go away. And Jan decided, no, it was a journalistic thing, even though we, I, you know, in, uh, I made that deal, a handshake deal. I, he decided I'm going to publish it as a book anyway. And there was a, some tension between he and John over this. And then when John found out that he was publishing it as a book against his will, he was infuriated. And, right, because John had moved on by that point, you know. And he didn't over want. And, and I think he felt ambivalent about some of the things he had ended up saying. Of course. And hurting Paul and hurting the the rest of the of the band and. He did, and, but in Jan's point of view was, this is like, uh, we just made history with this thing and now we're gonna memorialize it in a book and we're gonna make a ton of money. And so he does it and consequently, the kind of hand in glove relationship that John Lennon and Jan Wenner had had was over. And yeah. Jan Wenner and John Lennon never spoke again. That was the end of their relationship until John's death. So it's interesting because Jan, at some point realizes he made a huge error, you know, that it, he put his own business interests ahead of his relationship. Right. With John, oh my God. Whatever yeah. it was. And so that ends up informing later on, uh, you know, the most famous Rolling Stone uh, cover of all time, which is John and Yoko, you know, he's nude wrapped around Yoko yeah, yeah, on yeah, the yeah, cover, yeah. which ends up being the memorial issue for John Lennon, right? And um, so, you know, there's so, and, and it, by that time, John and Yoko have Double Fantasy coming out and, you know, uh, they're, they're convinced to work with Rolling Stone again in a direct way by David Geffen, who was mm -hmm. their producer, you know, uh, their record, 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 record yeah, label yeah. owner. And, and they give the interview to Jonathan Cott, Annie Leibovitz takes these, uh, you know, classic, uh, images, which by the way, were taken like hours before he was assassinated. And uh, so what was going to be a John and Yoko, you know, article in Rolling Stone magazine about their new record ends up being, you know, the memorial for oh, his death. Right. And, um, it took on new significance. Yes. That's right. And one of the f unbelievable uh, things about that is that, uh, Instantly, when John Lennon is killed, 
of course, everybody's calling on Wenner because they want him to talk about the significance of the Beatles, the significance of John. And when he produces this issue in, in uh, 1980, um, late 1980, I think it's January 1981. Yeah, it's, it came out the same month that Reagan came into office. Um, Jan uh, decides to put a secret message into hidden in the seam of every issue of Rolling Stone magazine to John. And it's so fascinating because it's 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 kind of doing two things. It was both a expression of love for John Lennon, this message that he inserts that you can only see with a with a magnifying glass, by the way. What is the message? Down, well, let me tell you, it's um, uh, I'll, uh, I'm going to pull it up here. Um, there we go. It, he said, you know, this is down in, you know, next to the staples in the magazine. I love you. I miss you. You're with God. I'll do what I said. Yoko, hold on. I'll make sure. I promise. XXX. Now, what was fascinating about this is that before the issue came out, Yoko Ono called him up to the Dakota because she wanted to talk about, hey, what are you going to do with those photographs you took? Are you going to publish those? Because those are a very raw statement that you got from the day that he was killed, and I want to be involved in whatever you're going to end up doing with those. Yeah. Because she has no reason to trust John, John Winter because of how he burnt them back in 1971, right? And so she's a little wary about what's going to happen with these photographs, and she wants to know what to do with them, what they're going to do with them. And he goes to see her, and they form an understanding during that meeting in the Dakota, and Jan basically tells her, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure this is right. I'm going to make this right. And so what's interesting about that little statement, I'll read just that section again. I'll do what I said. Yoko, hold on. I'll make sure. Promise. Right? It's a fascinating moment because he's both assuaging the guilt for having betrayed them the first time and promising her that he's going to take care of her and take care of the image of John Lennon after his death, and which he does. And through the years subsequent to that assassination, Jan Wenner and Yoko become social friends, very close social friends. And he becomes, as I write in the book, very big uh, and important um, kind of framer of the John Lennon legacy, right? That's he right. works with Yoko to, to turn John Lennon into an icon, into a James Dean-like character. Um, and, and, you know, Rightfully so. Um, but there's all this consequence to that, which we can discuss because it has an impact on the way people view Paul. That's right. right. See, that's the hard part. I, I hear that and I'm like, well, cool, except for they're always treated as a zero sum game, you know? Right. And that was because that came out of the initial narrative of the Beatles breakup in which, you, you know, take your side, right? Are you a John Lennon person or are you a Paul person? And, you know, it doesn't have to be either or, but people often did. And the critics looked at Paul's stuff and they said, it's lightweight pap. You don't have the good. 
goods. And then John is the real guy who lives out loud and, and is yeah, yeah, professional yeah. and you know, pours <laughs> yeah. his heart out. And so he's the real deal. And he did start the Beatles. He was the leader of the Beatles, which Paul acknowledges you know, over the years. But by the time you get to Let It Be, by the time you get to Abbey Road, Paul is really the leader of the of the Beatles. And he's really, I think, I mean, look at side two of Abbey Road. Side two of Abbey Road is a tour de force that is a, an arrangement of Paul McCartney's, you know? Yeah, yeah. Even the stuff that, you know, John wrote is part of his suite, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, you know, people will argue up and down about this, but the thing to know about this is that Paul McCartney was paying attention to what Rolling Stone was saying, to the way they reviewed his records, because Rolling Stone. Oh, of course was, he was, you know. They were part of how people ended up viewing Paul because they negatively reviewed Paul's solo records and and gave John, you know, uh, the saint treatment. I right? feel so, uh, this breaks my heart, actually. Like, yeah. I love both John and Paul, but this story breaks my heart yeah. because this is one of our greatest artists that yeah. was just like systematically not destroyed, but, you know, his, his work was dismissed by you yes. know, the most influential magazine for, yeah. for a political reason, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, there's an interesting little uh, subplot to this, which is that I think John and uh, Lennon, you know, he understood after the betrayal by Rolling Stone. I think that he understood uh, how he came to understand how Rolling Stone exploited. That's right. The, yes. The different the the combat between yes. between John and Paul. Yeah. And the evidence of that in my book, which was one of the I most love fascinating story. I love the story. Discoveries. Okay. Yeah. 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 Was the Polaroid right? The Polaroid. Yes picture that I discovered in Jan's archive that was a picture of John and Paul together with with um, you know uh, Mary and um, Keith Moon um, and it says on it uh, Palm Sunday 1974 was, yeah. was dated yeah. and it said how do you sleep question mark question mark question mark which yeah. of course is the John Lennon song that is a sort of like stab at Paul yeah but now it was directed at Jan it was sent to him care of Johann Wiener, like a little comical <laughs> yeah. thing, just the kind Very of John. thing that John Lennon would do. Yeah. 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 So he sends him this Polaroid and it shows that the Beatles have actually, looks like they've patched things up. It was right? him and it's Paul. The, yeah. When Paul goes to right. visit him. Paul, in, in Paul LA. has gone to visit him. That's yeah. right. And on the, uh, according to Paul at the request of Yoko, Yoko has said, I'll, Paul would be the perfect intermediary here. If he wants to come back to me, because at this point he's in his LA wild period with Maypang, then he can, and I'm going to have Paul deliver the message that if you want to get back with Yoko, you need to make it right and stop acting like a fool. So, uh, so he goes to LA and he, he meets him. Um, of course, that's not, uh, do you want to know the this, this story? This is an interesting story, but um, you know, I interviewed Paul yes. for this book and it was like a, you know, enormously uh, intense and fantastic peak experience for me as a journalist. To, okay. Well, let's talk about that. To meet him, but to have the interview I had with him. And he described, when I showed him this Polaroid, he said, huh, oh yeah, I didn't send this Polaroid. That's not my handwriting. But I can tell you the story. 
what happened here. And he tells the story of Yoko asking him to come go to LA and see John. And so he goes. And uh, when he gets there, I think it was in Santa Monica, uh, John's not awake yet. And so he's asked to sit in the courtyard, in this little garden courtyard, to wait for John to wake up. And it's noon. And in the courtyard are Harry Nielsen and Keith Moon and uh, some of the other, you know, May Pang and the entourage there. And they're waiting. And uh, Harry Nielsen uh, idly says to Paul, uh, would you like to do some angel dust? <laughs> and uh, Paul, Paul says, huh, well, uh, you know, what is it? And he goes, well, it's an, it's an elephant tranquilizer. Uh -huh. And uh, Paul says, hmm, well, is it fun? Mm -hmm. And Good he said, uh, Harry, Harry kind of like uh, sits there and thinks a second. And he's like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> and he's just like, well, then I guess I won't do it. You know? But and his point to this story was like, that's what the, these guys were like. They were just like, mm -hmm they'll do anything. You know, he said, if they saw a cliff, they'd jump off of it. Mm -hmm. And they always, and he said, they always saw me as like a bit of a, you know, uh, uh, too careful. And yeah, oh, Paul yeah. is like, he's not cool or whatever. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't going to do that. You know? And, uh, so, you know, Paul, uh, finally John comes out into the courtyard and he said they hugged. Yeah. Right. Yeah. May describes and, that too. Yeah. Right. And, uh, that he said this, this was not typical. Uh, of their relationship. He said to me that, you know, they were tough mates with each other. So a kind of warm, you know, 1970s hug was not exactly like what they were doing all the time. They, you know, and so he, Paul describes to me, he said, John used to say, touching is good, right? And he thought, this is nice. This, I like, uh, this is a good side of John. Like, you know, yes. he's, there's something sweet about him and I like this. And uh, so he delivers the message. And subsequently, John does go back to Yoko, as we know, and that precipitates uh, that return eventually uh, of him moving to New York. I'm sure there's some there's a circuitous route yes, going back yes, to. Yes. But, um, and it was messy and, and Yeah, it was weird. like a year, year later he went back, by the way, like, or <laughs> right. 10 months later, yeah. Right, right, he had some more partying to do <laughs> and to make pussycats with Harry Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, um, but the point is, is uh, that, that, that Polaroid and the message on that Polaroid to Jan was like, how do you sleep? And by the way, look at us, we're together and the divisions that you've exploited for the lifetime of Rolling Stone up to that date, you know, it was sort of like a, you know. Oh yeah, I found that you, so uh, meaningful. Like I loved that anecdote because it reflects to me that by this point, you know, I think he's got some songs to Paul on Walls and Bridges and you know even the title but i think he's recognized i was an idiot i've been used and the person that i've been really used by is jan wenner and you tried to divide us you know that's what yeah. this says to me and you can't yeah yeah and i think that Paul, as he tells me in the book, um, he never trusted Jan. Let's talk about yeah. his relationship with Paul, because I think you make the point that Paul won't let him into his place in in 69 or something like that. Well, he wouldn't give him an interview. And um, the, uh, the thing is, is that uh, because Jan was um, working so closely with John, yeah. right? He thought that 
uh, you know, that Jan was a partisan of John and was not going to be on his side in any, you know, as they begin to fracture, right? Uh, he also believed and says in the book that he thought, and this is a little more speculative, but it's pretty interesting. Paul always thought that Jan stole the idea for Rolling Stone from a newspaper that Paul was involved in in London in the mid 60s. Um, I think it was the International Times. That's right, yeah. And uh, which was like a little like hippie broadsheet, right? Yeah, like yeah. a stoned newspaper. And Paul, and he said, I, I always tried to get Jan to admit it, but he wouldn't admit it. Oh, of course, yeah. An, and, and, and it's true that Jan was in London in, uh, I believe, 66. He took a, a summer to live in London and was trying to do writing for the Melody Maker and other kinds of things and would have seen this newspaper. That's interesting. Certainly. Yeah. And so Paul funds that, the International Times. Yeah, right? that's right. He funded it. It was out of the yeah. gallery there. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the uh, Paul always has this sort of like skeptical view of Jan. And by the way, an interesting subplot to that is that Linda Eastman, before she was Linda McCartney, had been a photographer for Rolling Stone, had been, she took, in fact, before Annie Leibovitz, the first female photographer to have work on the cover of Rolling Stone was Linda. I know, that's huge. And that was before and she got together with Paul. So, yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, and so she was always sort of a back channel to Jan, but she didn't totally trust Jan. And so... Subsequently, Paul didn't totally trust Jan, and of course, he didn't trust him mainly because Jan, Jan was acting as, you know, the frontman for John and Yoko, right? So as the years uh, progress, you know, uh, you know, Paul begins to take a more. He first of all, he's unhappy with all the reviews. They they trashed McCartney one. They trashed Ram. You know, they trashed his solo records when they were first Can we talk about out. McCartney? Because that's a good example of how um, Wenner's personal view of McCartney influenced his reviews of McCartney's albums. Well, yeah, back to back to the, the division, right? Um, I mean, listen, Jan's a journalist and he wanted to, there was a division and he wanted to exploit it and put it in Rolling Stone magazine. What, what, Rolling Stone wouldn't be Rolling Stone if they didn't find out what the deal was with the Beatles, right? That was sort of, I'm not saying, you know, journalism is, can be a dirty business. And he, you know, Jan wanted to get to the heart of the matter and he was going to get the story, right? And he got it from John. But uh, when McCartney One came out, it came with an interview, you know, a little Q&A with Paul that was basically prefab that was meant to basically say, hey, the Beatles are done. You know, it had, it basically announced that the Beatles were done. And when the first review came in, uh, it was a little soft, Jan felt, because it was um, talking about these. This, this album shows that Paul is in his marriage with Linda now, and there's some sweet kind of family. It's insular. It has a kind of like, uh, you know, homey kind of vibe to it. And Jan's like, this is not the review. The review is this is a weapon, this, this record. This record is a statement of purpose against John Lennon, and that's what we need to focus on. Oh and so <laughs> there were aspect there's an aspect to that that's true. So, you know, he he had the review revised to be more How is that divisive. true? Paul's well, little album about family and love is Well, a, the Q&A part, not the record, but you know what? Um, I the, love that record. So. The, the Q&A doesn't even say say that it's the end of the Beatles. It he says it's the end of Lennon McCartney. You know, so but but I think you make the point that it started as a positive review and then That's right. A more positive review for sure and then it got you know 
Jan sent it back for a uh, revision. So let's put it that way. So that's a famous story that Grill Marcus tells. Yeah, um, but that's so that's you know important. that that's that because Jan was very very acute into what was going on, and he also, of course, wanted that John Lennon interview, right? So if you think about it and the timing of it all, he's definitely thinking about John Lennon and making John Lennon happy and keeping John Lennon on the hook for the big interview. Do you think he was, sometimes I feel like Jan was maybe in love with John or I, you know, maybe sure. to your point. Like... People say that people told me that, you know, that, and here's the truth. Jan was a big fan. He was a fanboy. Yeah. Right. He was maybe the first famous fanboy in rock and roll. Yeah. Right. And he definitely was infatuated with John Lennon, but he's infatuated with famous people. Yes, yes. But John Lennon was the most famous guy, yes, right? Yes. So he's totally infatuated with him. He, John Lennon is the essence of what his magazine is about, which is music and culture and the music of culture of music and the, the kind of politics of you know, the 60s revolution. It's all wrapped up in John. I mean, John is the guy that's having the... You know, the the peace festivals and the bed ins. Yeah, he's yeah. the he is the message of the generation and what the Beatles were about and what the sixties were about. So that's Rolling Stone naturally gravitated to him as like this guy's the star. I'm, he's the star of our story. Yes. Right? And so that's it made perfect sense for Jan to be infatuated with him and into him because Jan's going to be infatuated with something that helps elevate his status and his thing, Rolling mm -hmm. Stone magazine, right? Which he cares about. And so it made sense because Paul, you know, was not a message guy. He was not a guy that was going to sell Rolling Stone based on making big, bold uh, statements of purpose and, and commenting on the politics. Okay, but can I just say that look at who is the one that is funding the International Times. As in, sure. John talked that game, but it was incorrect to say that Paul wasn't interested in culture and no, he was the message. In art. Yeah. yeah, and he did. He was involved with a lot of avant-garde stuff, and he's the one that's like bringing in the backwards tapes and getting interested in well, all also the. Also, the International you know, Times that he says that when are stealing his idea. So you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. He was it, on it. He was on it, for sure. I mean, I'm I, I'm not saying it's right, but it was yeah, the yeah, perception of yeah. the, at the time, which was with the world he was living in, right? So yeah, yeah. that that John Wenner and Rolling Stone were living in. So, yeah. and also once he had him on the hook, there was no going back. It's, you know. Once he put um, two virgins, the nude photograph on the cover of Rolling Stone, yeah. he had John and Yoko on his side. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was just like he yes. saw that John and Yoko were purposely making controversy, yeah. purposely into media, purposely into being out there on camera, being photographed. They, and he's in the business of making media. So yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's so, an obvious marriage. You know, yes, it's an yes. obvious marriage. And the marriage lasts until, you know, uh, 1971 and then it ends and in fact just you know in my book the way i structured the book is the uh the end of the of his relationship with john lennon precipitates the need for a new um figure to be the kind of you yes know, hood ornament of rolling yeah, stone yeah. magazine and that ends up being hunter thompson yeah. because the whole generation moves into a kind of not post rock and roll but into let's expand the palette into other mediums and other yeah. things, movies and, and, you know, new journalism and so forth. So anyway, that, and that's why I put them side by side in the book, because yeah. if you see the, the Lennon relationship dissolve, he's building the relationship with Hunter S. Thompson right at that same time.
Yeah. And it's a fascinating overlap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So also, also questions, by the way, of whether he was in love with Hunter, right? So, and I don't think he was in love with him, but certainly infatuated with him because he saw that he had a tiger by the tail. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah. The reason why I asked him was he in love with John Lennon, and it makes sense more that he's infatuated with the image of John Lennon. But the reason I asked that is sometimes his treatment of McCartney is kind of like, it's emotional. Like you're hurting my guy. You know what I mean? Like he treats him like it's the ex that is hurting the one that he loves. You yeah. Know? Well, that's what it was. It was definitely that. And he, and they never, but by the way, through the years, there was, there are more chapters to this up the road, you know, uh, where Paul and Jan Wenner are not getting along or they're having division over a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which ends up being a big drama. And um, I just remembered that um, maybe 15 years ago, I was asked, did I want to do a story about Paul? And it, the story had come directly from Jan down to another editor at Rolling Stone. And he, it was, it was either like the post 9-11 charity concert at Madison Square Garden, or it could have been another kind of concert following a disaster. Still, we're talking even just in recent times, 21st century, Jan was still had a kind of negative or view of, of Paul or wanted to drop a dime on Paul. Like why? I don't know. You know, maybe there was something to it. I don't know. But, you know, but right before all this, as I write about in the book, Jan had betrayed Paul over his promise to put him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, that's a whole sequence in my book that you can read about. You may or may not be interested in it. But basically, like, he promised Paul to put him in and then seven or eight years later finally put him in. And when Paul was, you know, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Paul's daughter, uh, Stella, came out with a T-shirt that said it's about fucking time. Yeah. Because they were pissed. So, you know, this... We what, often, was, what was the trade-off? Let the, tell tell the listeners what the trade-off. Oh, was. sure. Well, that well the first call, which is in the early '90s, was to Paul from Jan saying, "Hey, would you induct John Lennon into the Rock and Roll Hall?" That was from Jan to Paul, right? Yeah, because Jan uh, was one of the founders of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or one of the main, you know, kind of curators of it. So, um, and Paul said, "Yeah, I hung up." I said, "Sure, I'll be glad." And then he said, "I hung up." And I started thinking, wait a minute, why isn't it John and Paul? Why aren't we being inducted together? Because it was always McCartney, Lennon, yeah. Lennon, McCartney. Yeah. Why aren't we together? Why is it one and not the other? And he said, hey, why is it? Why is that? He called Jan back, and Jan said, oh, we'll put you in next year. And so he said he got Paul said he got a kind of verbal promise from Jan that he would be inducted the following yeah. year, which gave him the, uh, you know, made it made Paul agree to do the induction of John Lennon. Next year comes along. He said, I opened up the paper. I see who's being inducted and I'm not in it. And he said, well, that jerk, he said a bunch of choice words in the book. I'll you can read it. But, um, <laughs> and so he, uh, you know, he was pissed and he said, that guy's jerk. Yeah. And then he said, Jan acted like he didn't have the power yeah. to do it. And he goes, Oh, it's always some guy down the hall. Yeah. Who, who, but he's like, Jan controls that whole thing. And there is this belief and it's never been proven down to the investigative level, but that, you know, for a long time, Jan had a lot to do with who was going in and out and sure. biases played into it. And I think that's, there's definitely some truth to it. So, um, so yeah, but you know, you will, if you look online, you put Jan Winter and Paul McCartney, they'll be standing next to each other, smiling at a public event 
right? Everybody play. It's all diplomacy, and they still play the game, and everybody's getting something out of it. But um, but when I interviewed Paul, and I think this is really a telling thing, uh, in addition to the Polaroid and the rest of it. When I called Paul McCartney's office saying I was writing this biography of Jan, and that Jan was cooperating, and uh, I said, could I interview him? He invited me out to his studio in, in the rural England, which mm-hmm. was not, you know, he could have done it on the phone, right? He but wanted he to said, talk to you. Okay, good. He yeah. wanted to bring me there. And when he sat me down, I was just sort of, maybe I think in the same way Jan Wenner was in shock when he did the John Lennon interview and John yeah, Lennon yeah. just stormed past him and unloaded every single thing. Paul just started to unload for me in a way that I was sitting there in shock. You know, we were sitting on a couch together in his office in this sort of lounge that he had. It was right above his studio. And, uh, you know, I asked a few questions. And I think when I showed him the Polaroid, it unlocked a lot of things for him. And after he told me all of these stories, he looked at me. And I just saw that, read this in the transcript the other day. He said, uh, this isn't going to be a whitewash, is it? And I said, this book? And he said, yeah. I said, no, no, it's not going to be. I'm going to tell the real story. And he's like, good. And I was just like, okay, he brought me here because he wanted to get his story in. Good. He wanted to tell me the things he said. And it made me realize that, wow, this is a real important part of the narrative of the Rolling Stone story is this is the Beatles and the way Paul feels about it, you know? And he was also resentful of, and you and I can, we can all debate whether this is petty or not, but he felt not only uh aggrieved by the treatment in the 60s and in the 70s but after john was killed he said you know rolling stone treated him like you know the james dean figure the saint yeah and i was cast as the also rent you yeah. know oh all i did was book the studio he yeah, says you yeah, know like yeah. that's all, that was my entire role in the beatles right? yeah. and it was all john yeah and he resented that of you know course. now and he should and, have and i think so and i i especially today think so because you know, we talk about whether you're a John or a Paul person. And I'm definitely, let's, let's just be honest. I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulist. Okay. <laughs> and, and I, and it's partly because, you know, I met the guy and that was a big event for me in my life. It was a little bit like unbelievable. Again, to finish up that story about hugging, you know, after he gave me a tour of his studio, yeah, uh, he played instruments for me. He played at the bass that was used on Heartbreak Hotel that, that he owns, mm-hmm. which is Bill Black's original you know, yeah. Elvis Presley bass. He played Heartbreak Hotel and he sang it to me and we were sitting in a room. I, mm-hmm. I was just like in, you know, you don't you can imagine. And uh and if you go on YouTube and type Paul McCartney and Mellotron into the YouTube, yeah, yeah. you'll see a video I posted of him playing Mellotron for me and it was extraordinary. But when he was seeing me off to go get in the car and go back into the go back to the train station, um I thanked him, you know, I said, thank you so much for this interview. It was like big for me. And he leaned in and he hugged me. Oh, and I, he leaned back and he says, touching is good. And I, it was that John quote. Yeah. And I, you know, I just lifted off the ground. You know what I mean? It was like the freaking Dalai Lama just (laughs) like uh, anointed you or something. I, I just, and you know, he had me in the palm of his hand. I was charmed. He's so easy and down to earth and he was relatable and, funny and and accessible right i mean and john's not here to do the same and i regret that because i love john Lennon. yeah yeah but i was definitely like you know i thought damn that was a special 
interview that I just had. So, but and just to go back to what we were saying, when, when, just to follow that up is I'm also a Paul person because I've listened to his solo records. Yeah. And especially the ones from the early seventies, because they are, they're still Beatles records to me. I mean, I listen to them and the echoes of Abbey road are all over mm-hmm. ramp. Oh my I God. Mean, if you listen, Ram's you know, my favorite solo album. It's yeah. my too. That's, you know, and I told Paul this in the interview. Oh, good. I said, you know, I said, Ram, I think is the greatest post Beatles solo record by any member of the Beatles. And he goes, really? I, you know, I've always had a hard time with that one. And I said, well, why? And he said, because it was such a painful time for me. Hmm. He said, me and Linda were isolated in that farm in Scotland and we were suing the Beatles and it was really an unhappy time to, you know, for me. Yeah. And so it's always been in a cloud of, of unhappy times for me and so i never he said but in recent times people have been coming to me and saying oh no you he said his nephew comes to him he goes this album is incredible you gotta and he goes oh maybe i should listen to it again you know he's acts like it's sort of like a you know he has a it's because for him it's his life right it's oh absolutely yeah they're so emotionally tied i wonder if the reviews of that album also play into his his view of it you know because it's interesting because he says that and yet that album is so joyful you know, it's yeah. it's so I actually yeah. have an interview uh, with one of the engineers that oh, wow. uh, Eric Wangberg, I did an interview with him earlier in the year about Ram. And he talks wow. about Linda and Paul being really isolated, but Paul being incredibly driven to just like make well, my yeah. mind clear that re- that record is so cohesive. And a lot of people are like, oh, he he never could finish a song. It's a pastiche of, well, you know. Are you kidding me? It's like side two of Abbey Road was a pastiche. Yeah, Nobody yeah. says that. It's like a beautiful <laughs> thing. I mean, I still see him working off side two of Abbey Road on Ram. I also think that side one of Band on the Run is very much a has echoes and uh, you know is speaking back to side two of Abbey Road and speaking back to the Beatles and saying, you know, there's a vibe there. Um, and by the way, on uh, the end of uh, McCartney one, you have dear, dear friend. I mean, that's, you know, um, well, uh, wildlife, wildlife, sorry, yeah. wildlife, which is a side two of wildlife is just a, any of those songs could have, you could have dropped them on the white album and people would have been, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a classic For song sure. from the white album. Exactly. Right? So um, in any event, uh, that's, it's, it's the post Beatles output that convinces me of how, important Paul was to the sound of the Beatles, especially the late Beatles. Right. Right. It's funny that, you know, Paul can be so charming. It's funny that he could never charm Jan or was he just not interested in doing that? He wasn't interested in doing it. Although he was insecure about his stuff. I mean, I, I, I note this in the, in the book, but uh, the Rolling Stone review of Ram, which you and I just, you know, agreed is, incredible yes and beautiful yeah uh this here's what they call it they say um john landau who later becomes springsteen's manager reviewed yeah. it he says um the album he says the album is the nadir in the decomposition of 60s rock those so far right. ram is so incredibly inconsequential and so monumentally irrelevant it is difficult to concentrate on let alone dislike or even hate that's brutal. You know, it's just like a complete dismissal of the album as like a non-entity. Right. You know? Which, you know, again, 
you and I are lucky to sit here today and this time and be able <laughs> yeah. to look back and reframe all of that history yeah. and and and, re and listen to it song by song for what it is, which mm -hmm. is incredible work of art. Yes, yes. But that's what bothers me is that in this political war, that these are works of art that were just yeah. dismissed. Yeah. In recent weeks and months, because of Get Back, I will say, and, and this is what the, another thing I wanted to tell you, which is that you and I are talking about reframing all of yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. this material and rethinking about what it, what it, you know, its value. Get Back, I think, is a great platform and premise and reframing of, or just a more in-depth view of the relationship between the different Beatles. And it also makes you understand the solo work better, I think. You start to see, A, we learned that All Things Must Pass was already written practically yes. while George was still yes. in the Beatles. Big parts of Plastic Ono Band, parts of McCartney One, they were yeah. all laying on the table there, right? Yeah, yeah. This is all creative work product That's from right. the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. And that this is Beatles music, mm -hmm. right? And that to me uh, made me revisit all the solo records. And so for the last month, all I've been listening to is solo McCartney, solo John Lennon, and All Things Must Pass. And as I listen to it, re-listen to it again, I've I've re-approached re it because of Peter Jackson's documentary. Great. You know? And it made me realize that when I wrote that provocative tweet that Wings was as good as the Beatles, <laughs> what I meant was that this material on like Wildlife and on Ram, I know it's not a Wings record, but uh, yeah, Wings stuff is, yes. yeah, yeah, this is um, as good as the Beatles, you know, I, it, I and, so. and that, the reason is, is because as we keep saying, it is Beatles, <laughs> you know, this is Beatles music. Yeah. I also, you know, Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that how 1974 was this sort of demarcation for me, and it may be kind of random, but yeah, yeah. I do think that when you get to Wings at the Speed of Sound, yeah. which is a record I, I love, but I also think that that's the record that where Paul begins to be Paul and not... I feel like there is a demarcation where the records stop, stop sounding like the Beatles. Mm. They start sounding like the different Beatles begin to individuate in a, in a way that is allowing them to finally breathe and be themselves and, and it, it, for the good and the bad. I mean, I don't think that Paul is talking to John Lennon anymore in Wings of, at the Speed of Sound. Yeah. I think he's addressing other things and he's moved on, right? Mm. Band on the Run is still, there's still some um atmospheric and creative conversation going on with the beatles uh, still i think from the way it sounds from the guitar sound from the production and the way it has the sweet like um yeah aspects to it that that are still echoing abbey road um and you know and as john becomes more uh breaks further and further from the beatles he becomes i feel like he's less successful holding himself up creatively outside of the Beatles when he stops being in conversation with what he was. And, and I know that's kind of a crazy thing to say, and I'm sure somebody could argue against that and convince me. But when I listen to like rock and roll, I'm not into New York city that much. I'm not, no. you know, there's, no, that there's some of that thing. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get, I like his attitude. I like how punk. Yeah. Yeah. John yeah. yeah is. I yeah. like what a, what a kind of explosive, you know, wild yeah. card he is. I mean, I love all that, <laughs> yeah. but it, it doesn't make me love his music all the time. And I love Dream Number Nine. I love, you know, uh, Make It Through the Night and the, yeah, the, it the, some of the mid-70s. Yeah, yeah. 
whatever well, that's gets. Walls and I love bridges. that stuff. But... Yeah, that's Walls and Bridges. I would argue that Walls and Bridges is a great album. Like I went on I Am the Egg Pod and, and talked about Wildlife and Walls and Bridges, two albums that yeah. I think uh, are great and don't have the halo that they probably should as as great albums. But I would argue that Lennon and McCartney continue to talk to each other. I mean, I think that Band on the Run and Walls and Bridges are talking to each other. There's songs to each other on both those albums. You know, yeah. it's interesting your point about they start to individuate Paul with the speed of sound. But Paul's interesting because then he does McCartney too, which that's the problem with sort of trying to pigeonhole Paul is that, you know, he he all of a sudden sounds incredibly different again. And so I think we yeah. tend to think of Paul from that era as being like real Paul McCartney, you know, but then he, he shifts and he does McCartney too, Yeah, I love he, but it's so different than that sound. He's always reformatting. Like, you know, I mean, London town is a total reformat too, yeah. you know, yeah. of sound and the approach and the sort of vibe of it. Yeah. But I think Go that ahead, there's a, a bit of a conversation between McCartney to double fantasy and um, tug of war. Like the, there's sort yeah. of an ongoing conversation in some songs, not in all. I think you're right that he starts to, you know, look at other things in his world. But that conversation never ends because I wonder, you know, there's some discussion about the fact that John and Paul might have reformulated in the early 80s if, you know, if John had. Yeah, been for, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you could also say that Silly Love Songs, which is on Speed of Sound, yeah. is kind of like um, all the crit criticisms that Paul had received. He's finally just embracing them and saying, fuck you, I like Silly Love Songs. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I love that song and I love that record, even though a lot of people have problems with that record for whatever reason. By the way, there's, um, you know, I'm a record collector and I have uh, a big final collection. Just, you know, that's not that important. But whenever I'm in a record store, uh, and I'm looking at records I don't understand. I go to allmusic.com, right? So allmusic.com is a big source for, you know, a lot of music nerds. Yeah. The reviewer of the Paul solo records is a total, I, I mean, I don't want to mention his name here, but like he just, he just savages all of them. And I, and I, you realize that he's kind of uh, carrying the, the, yes. the torch yes. for this view of yes. Paul as like, kind of like letting everybody down. Right. Yes. And it, just, that's, it, that's it infuriates me. Yeah, that's a good way of articulating it. You get the sense that Paul was disappointing, you know, that he let everyone down. And it's and that's hard to, like, embrace somebody's solar music when you think, oh, it's kind of disappointing. And, and it's unfortunate. And I think the nice thing is, I think younger people finally don't care, really don't care that much. They're not boomers, so they didn't come up, or even like Gen X. They're not attached to that. It's the 21st century. We've become unhinged from all that storyline anyway. You can just listen to the music and not be... And that's why you see younger bands and musicians looking at records like London Town or looking at McCartney 2 yeah. and saying, hey, this is innovative. Let's copy this. This is cool. <laughs> you know? And yeah. at the time, it was not that way at all, right? You know, Nobody looked at McCartney 2 at the time and thought, oh, let's give him a great big review, right? Oh. But again, the frustrating thing is Paul was a Beatle and created so many of these incredible songs. It pisses me off to think that they didn't give him the respect. And I guess they do this to all musicians, but that they didn't give him the respect to think that he was a great artist and let's see what he's doing, well, you know? And I'll tell you why I think that is. Okay. If if you listen to, I'll just say, you know, I've named it in the course of this podcast, I've named it, but Side Two of Wildlife, 
side one of Man on the Run, um, all kinds of stuff on McCartney one. Red Rose Speedway has problems, uh, but there's a couple of great tracks on it. He's so effortless. It's so it seems so easy what he's doing. Yeah. Like the number of melodic pieces of melodic genius in just any three minute span on those sections of records I'm just talking about is so you know most there's entire bands whose catalog doesn't even match up to one side of one of his <laughs> records. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like he 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 made it so easy and he was such a pleaser that people and you know some, some people argue that his lyrics aren't good or whatever. Yeah. They think that John Lennon if John Lennon had been involved, they would have been more, I don't know, whatever, right? And, yeah. But, you know, there's tons of Beatles songs that are meaningless that everybody loves, right? And it's like, you know. But also, so like, why, wild, why is, wildlife is meaningful. But anyways, yes, go on. Absolutely. I, and I, but I think that's the ease with which he, he, he was such a melodic, he is such a melodic genius that I think it just appeared to be too easy for him and people resented how easy it was, you know, that there's something so effortless about it. And if they don't see the effort, they don't think that he's actually done anything. You know? <laughs> he's not good at talking um, about his stuff either. He should have treated his stuff as, you know, the great work of art that it was. And Right, but it's not his style. It's not, you know, he's, it's not. He's too laid back for that. And he was so, and I'll, here's another issue I want to discuss with you because okay. this is, and this relates, which is, you know, people's view of Linda. Oh, um, I wanted to ask you about this. So great. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm a huge fan of Linda's um, part in his albums. You know, people say she's got this untrained amateur voice. She's not a, a, a real singer, whatever that is. Yeah. And in the subsequent years, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, people have come around to look at these McCartney albums. Oh, this is the birth of indie rock. This yeah, yeah, is yeah, what yeah, yeah. all records sound like now. Everybody is trying to be real like that. And in the in the and she served a purpose for McCartney, which was to make him sound less like a total pro, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it grounded him, but yeah. it was also part of the content of the music. I mean, people say, Oh, these are trite lyrics or whatever, but when he's saying, Baby, I'm amazed, he means it. <laughs> right? He's in love with her, yeah. right? These are love songs. Yeah. And she's in the band and they're singing about the love between them. And they celebrated their their love and their marriage which was not like some big revolution like john and yoko it was actually uh, you know it was a revolution in how kind of um domestic and 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 grounded and earthy it was you know what i mean it, it was so um there's something beautiful about how there you know i have friends that just can't stand when she comes and sings with him because they I think it kind it. of like I love it. And I don't I don't get it either. I love it because it's a particular sound. When yeah. they harmonize together, yes. it's a kind of a beautiful thing. I I mean I, I think of um I am your singer on side yes. two of wildlife. It's such a glorious, gorgeous song. I mean I can't. Or some people stand never know. Some people never some know. Some people never know. It's so great. I mean I love it so much. I even love when she's just got the jokey voice on side two of Ram and right. she's you know yeah. kind of hamming it up or whatever. I just I think she's great and um, I think she adds a lot. I do too. Actually. A personality. Um, yep. A lot of personality and she attitude. Yeah. Ends up kind of making, um, him, uh, engage more meaningfully in the kind of emotions of the songs. That's interesting.
Even when I was looking at RAM in the early 2000s, every review was like, it's, it's a genius record, but it's lightweight. I find family and life and home and kind of all that stuff really meaningful, but it wasn't considered yeah. that for a long time. No. You know? And by the way, the opening song is a very meaningful track. It's one of the most insightful tracks of the Beatles history. Too many is, people? Uh, too many people. Yeah, you took your lucky break and broke it in two. He's talking directly to John Lennon. That and we, I talked about that song with him. Oh, when I interviewed. Oh, him. tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, well, he just—I mean, I, I said, you know, you have these songs where you're directly talking to him, and he talked about dear friend, and he talked about um, too many people, and you know, if you analyze the lyrics to that song, he didn't elaborate too much more on it, but if you look at the lyrics to that song. Uh, I'm going to actually pull them up because I just really want to yeah, go yeah, through the, you yeah. know. Um, this song is, especially after watching the Peter Jackson um, movie, will really uh, even has, it resonates even more because basically, first of all, he's, there's like a little bit of a poke at both John and George. Too many people going underground, too many people pe reaching for a piece of cake. Absolutely. Too many people pulled and pushed around. Too many waiting for that lucky break. That was your first mistake. You took your lucky break and you broke it in two. Now, what can be done for you? You broke it in two. And, and you know, it's like, and then, you know, and also the, the decadence of, of where they were. Too many people sharing party lines. Too many people uh, sleeping late. You know, it's, it's, I think that's a very, um, uh, you know, substantial uh, song lyrically yeah. and content wise. And, uh, you know, and the reason I bring that song up is because what Peter Jackson did with get back was to basically make a reality TV show, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Out of the Beatles yeah. raw material. And it allows you to get deeper into the interpersonal, you know, fault lines between these four beloved characters. Yeah. Right. And now when you look at these solo songs and you start to analyze what's going on in these songs, yeah. isn't it a pity on the, on the George Harrison or, um, you know, uh, how do you sleep? Right. Which is just a savage, you know, uh, blow to, to Paul. I mean, they resonate even more knowing how they connect to the broader narrative, you know, these albums. So anyway, all of which is to say, um, you know, I think if, when you, when you reanalyze them as we've been discussing and you, um, think about how these albums celebrate, Paul and Linda's marriage and their creative mm -hmm. and for him to bring her into his creative world. That's a big thing. You know, he didn't have to do that. He could have been the big macho patriarch. Yeah. and I'm the only creative guy in town. Yeah. And, and people try to analyze that as, Oh, Paul was insecure and he wanted to have a band around him so he could feel comfortable, but he's not into the guy. Look at it. He just tosses off pieces <laughs> of genius. Like he's just throwing a piece of paper right, across. Right, the room, right. right. I think he that's a great need point. These people. Yes. You know, he did it on purpose because that was part of the content of what he was creating. He yeah. says that repeatedly too, that they were creating, they fell in love with doing things a different way in this new world they were creating. You know, they were yeah. kind of like this musical family. So I think he fell in love with this new vision of who he could be. And she was half of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And her photography, you know, when Ram came out, there was a photo book. It's very rare and hard to find, but it, it's out there. A friend of mine has it. Um, and I'm very jealous of it, but it's all, um, photos that have been, some of which have been treated like the cover of the Ram mm -hmm. album, 
but they're all photos that Linda took. And it really is like a whole photo album that sort of you know goes along with Ram that shows you more deeply the kind of intimate farm life they were living at that time where he's got the boots pulled up and they're mm -hmm. out there getting dirty and yeah. you know trying to be real right yeah yeah um and you know when i looked at that book i remember when I, the guy who introduced me to ram and i'll never forget the night i was introduced to ram okay good yeah you know um my friend just a you know this is sort of hilarious he's an he's an amazing guy his name is john carlo Filippa, and he's a wonderful musician lives out in long island and he uh, had a quadraphonic stereo system which is like four speakers in the room and he yeah. had ram on reel-to-reel -reel tape yeah. which is like this guy's serious he yeah. really wants this to sound you know, <laughs> i remember we sat in a living room listening to ram from beginning to end and i was just like that was an incredible experience you know i was it was a revel revelation and a, a kind of conversion experience had you you'd um, already heard it though but i'd heard pieces of it okay. like you know um the admiral um, I'll see, uh, sorry what, uncle albert yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, uncle albert but uh and then he had the book and he showed it to me and as i was looking in the book and seeing how much how, how multi-dimensional that this piece of art was and then you look at that review i just mentioned yeah. that was in rolling stone yeah. and it just does it's a total disconnect like and these are just like pretentious assholes like you know you know uh just pretending that they are so um they know better than yeah. paul mccartney you know, give me I mean, a break. No, that's what I find infuriating. Like this guy that led the sixties, you can't give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's creating art here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, now on the flip side of that, um, I've also been revisiting plastic Ono band and again, profound, intense record. It's just not a record you want to listen to as often as Ram because it's so fucking heavy. That's, that's right? my it's issue such... with it. That is my issue. with yeah. it. I love it. I actually love the sound of it. I love the sparseness of it. John sounds amazing. It's just so heavy. Like I, you know, it's a hard, hard to take. Ram is happy as much as Paul was going through a lot when he wrote it. Like he wrote something like 30 songs that summer on the farm. So clearly he is dealing with his emotions through writing songs, you know, but uh, I mean, I love Plastic Ono Band too, but I, I don't listen to it very often, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a great, it's a amazing work of art like one of the great works of art of confessional yes. art, you know, in any medium. Yes. And, um, and the more you analyze the lyrics, just the, you know, deeper and darker it gets to man. It's a dark, deep, dark record, you know, and it's not, it's not every day of the week you're wanting to listen to that record. Right. Also um, Ram is speaking to John, but plastic Ono band speaks to Paul. You know, I think we understand Paul's devastation of yeah. the breakup, but John is so reactive and hurt during the breakup. And that I think is commensurate with how much he cared and how devastated he was, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely, uh, they're all uh, suffering in their own way because they feel lost a little bit. Yeah. Right. And they're trying to find themselves as we've discussed. And, and they have these very powerful women in their lives who are, a part of their new formula and they're trying to figure out what that formula means and what it is you know yeah um i love the fact that you highlighted linda because i always do too because yoko gets credited at least for being an artist and i think linda's yeah. such an interesting artist too you know such a like you Absolutely. can tell you can tell from her her photography how thoughtful and artistic she is you know yeah but and if you're of our generation and you heard like you know kim gordon 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or the way the breeders sing or whatever. Well, that was all presaged by Linda. I mean, you know, like that's Linda was singing like that. She's like, I'm gonna, I'm going to uh, lean into my amateur voice. Yeah, yeah. And make it a make it a you know uh, make it a kind of like um, a feature rather than a uh, you know an error, right? And that's to me the that was a a kind of a, a stroke, a master stroke. Yeah. You know? And Paul, it makes me feel badly that he has to defend her. Right. But okay, what I'm curious about sure. is what was the winner Linda relationship? Like, did he, did they have any? Yeah. Well, when, when Rolling Stone was first starting, yeah. Jan would make periodic uh, trips to New York mm-hmm. to meet with different people there, advertisers or writers and photographers. And he would go to her apartment and flip through her photo. Uh, albums and Jan and Linda and and there was another um, uh, who wrote the rock uh, encyclopedia Lillian oh Roxon. yeah 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 so Lillian Roxon was very close with Linda mm-hmm. and they this and according to Jan she was in love with Linda but you know mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there but you know these are young kids yeah they're all like 20 years old yeah they're suddenly involved in this big rock revolution and they just want to get as close to it as they can, whether it's through a camera or an interview, or I run a magazine and I want to put you in it. They just are infatuated with these rockers and they want to be around them and do whatever they can with them, whether it's like seeing them in concert, interviewing them, you name it. So Mm -hmm. she was a part of that milieu at the time. And Jan was, you know, she would, was a natural person for him to talk to. And both uh, Lillian Roxon did a profile of Jan for I Magazine, which was like a counterculture magazine published by Hearst in the 60s. And then Jan uses Linda's photos in Rolling Stone. So they're all like, you know, part of the uh, scene. Yeah. Right. And did he like Linda? Did he have any interest in Linda? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're bringing this up because you remember this, but like uh, he claims that he uh almost slept with her, with Linda. Mm. Jan. And I kind of think that he says that to, to throw a barb at Paul, but uh, he says that uh, Lillian Roxon ruined the mood, skunked the mood, he said, and uh, and ruined his chances at sleeping with Linda, which is ironic because he really didn't want to sleep with any women. He wanted to sleep with men, but um, <laughs> you know, it was the 60s. It's hard to know what was going on. Oh, right, right. I'd like to hear Linda's perspective on that one. Yeah, um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yes, what was her opinion of of uh, Winner, because I get the sense that they didn't take Winner as seriously as they probably should have, you know, in terms of being a... Yeah. I, you know, I saw the correspondence between them, and it was not as personal as... It, it's not like they had, like, a, a friendship, mm. you know? I think they had kind of like a casual kind of, um, uh, you know, um, business-like relationship. Right. It, it, that was friendly in the way that people that age would have been friendly with each other yeah. and cool. You mean Linda, right? Linda and Jan? Linda and Jan, but I don't think that they had like some, you know, famous uh, friendship or anything. Right, right. It just makes me think that Paul and Linda didn't think that Jan was, like John and Yoko were a little bit smarter about using, saw the, the power of Jan. I think Jan. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she probably uh, thought, well, now that I'm not having to take pictures for a living with Rolling Stone magazine and I'm with Paul McCartney, we don't need Jan. I don't, I don't think that she was like particularly interested in forming that relationship. And also Paul's motives were different, right? Paul was still in Beatles. Paul wants to continue with the Beatles. He's just like, let's just do the same old Beatles machine we've been doing. Yeah. Right. It's good. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, we don't need, I don't need to form a relationship with Rolling Stone and make a big statement by taking naked pictures of myself, right? That's not where he was, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was Jan's impression of Yoko? Do you know? Well, it's interesting because I think that um, he did, I don't, I think he didn't care about her in the 60s, right? It, except to the extent that she could get him to John, yeah. right? I think later, after John's assassinated, their friendship became a very important part of his social life. And for them to be seen together, a successful publisher of a magazine in Manhattan, socializing with this famous, you know, artist and rocker and widow, you know, whose who's, uh, late husband is an icon, yeah. right? Uh, was important to him. They went to Buckingham Palace together and met the Queen. They went to the Soviet Union together right. on these. So they they vacationed together. They went on you know trips with their kids when they were coming, and they were had a whole social world. And she had a partner all through the eighties, who was a gay man who was sort of like, I don't know, a walker of some kind. It was like what you know, the word they would use sort of it's back in the day. This is like, well. It's a word that you hear expressed. It's like wealthy socialites in, in New York will have like a gay man who attends to them and like hangs with them, yeah. like a buddy who yeah. is their partner at parties and stuff. And uh, so they all hung out and Jan's wife, Jane, was also friends with Yoko and they would gossip and, you know, they would have dinner parties basically yeah. with people. As the years went on, I think Yoko... Uh, the worm turned on their relationship a little bit, I think, after a while. Or she, she still liked him, and he still liked her, but they were a little became a little more wary of each other, or maybe they just became disinterested. In each other, right. I think as things sure. went on up the road, um, and uh, you know, it was um, she has a, a yearly peace prize. Yes. Yoko Ono. Yes. And she gave it to Jan one time, and I uh, one year. This is a few years ago, and I asked her. Well, what motivated you to give Jan the Peace Prize? She goes, it seemed like he was having a hard time with his life and his career. And I thought I would just do this favor for him, and, you know, and I, and I was like, yeah, he's not going to like to hear that, but okay. She was pretty candid about Jan and, uh, you know, about his betrayals too. And she remembered them quite vividly. Like she remembered the time that Jan called John Lennon in a hotel room to tell him that he was publishing this book of yeah. his interview and he said, I, and I want to send you six free copies oh with the way her storyline oh, went geez. and that he said all kinds of terrible things to Jan and screamed at him and then hung up on him. She remembered this whole scene and she described it. You know? Right. I mean, that's, that's so awful for, for John. Like, first of all, was John on heroin when he did that? Do you think, I know he was doing it at the time. I don't know if he was actually on it when he gave that interview. I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I don't remember it being reported that way, but, you know, um, I remember when people talked about when he came to San Francisco, subsequent to that interview, after it, yeah. uh, you know, in my book, as you'll see that he was so pissed off about Jan's betrayal that he uh, offered to back another magazine in San Francisco that he thought could be a competitor role. Yeah, yeah. And those people, I talked to some people involved in that magazine. I'm going to remember the name of it in a minute. Um, had the word son in it. Son, I'll think of it. Um, they remember, you know, going around with John trying to score 
right? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Heroin while he was in San Francisco. So it was definitely a period when he was on it. Yeah. You know, and do and so whether he was on it during the interview, I don't know. I I would doubt that, but you know, he was definitely feeling uh, extremely loose. Yes. Loose. Yeah, big time. It's interesting, you know. I used to hate that interview and and I've really spent a lot of time with that interview to try and understand John and it just seems like, you know, John and George both talked about this later in the 70s. Like that was a period of time when he was going through pain. And it seems like somebody who's in a divorce that's very hurt by their ex and just, you know, really angry at them. And then you feel better six months from now and you look back and you're like, oh, well, that, okay, that, that kind of was bullshit, you know? And because it was made into a book, like the fact that it was made into a book made it so much more significant. Like this is something to be remembered. Did Wenner feel at all like it was unfair given John's about face afterwards? Yeah, well, he says that he feels that it was a big mistake, that he chose the money over the friendship, is the way he put it. And I don't know, but when he felt that was a mistake, it's hard to know, because he may have not, he may have felt it was a mistake now that he was giving an interview as a biographer, or did he feel it was a mistake at the time? Right. You know, my sense is that he felt like a lot of people did, as we've been discussing, that the Beatles were irrelevant now. They broke up. Mm. So next, mm. you know what I mean? Like okay. that storyline is over. And so why should I care? Right. He thought this was the end yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of these guys. Right. And, you know, that wasn't true uh, in terms of their relevance to his magazine, yeah. but, um, and they, they did report on him in the magazine continually. Oh yeah. His, his hot, his hijinks in LA. Especially. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, the thing about that is that he's not a, this is my opinion, that he's not a great yeah. interviewer in there, in that he doesn't push back or ask for clarification or, you know, counter any of John's points. Like he just accepts. I mean, and maybe that. Yeah, would... well, I don't think I, I, I describe it in the in the book that he, you know, he'd be like, uh, he would ask a question like, um, how did you like your guitar playing on that song? You know, just the most benign, banal yeah. songs, but. John just took every opportunity he could to just unload. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pa- he went past Jan Wenner. Yes. You know, he was unloading to an audience that was behind Jan somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he was talking about, uh, he had things he wanted to get off his chest. And it didn't matter what Jan asked, he was going to get him off of his chest. Yeah. That's, that's the feeling of that interview. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Except for the fact that he could have occasionally followed up with a question. But, you know, I'm sure John. No, Lennon... I, I agree with you. I just don't think. I, my point is, is, I don't think John, Jan was not a great interviewer. If he had, he would have done lots of other great interviews. Right, right, right. He didn't do a lot of other great yeah, interviews. Yeah, yeah. He just happened to be at the right time at the right place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the book, uh, you talk about Yoko after John dies, like going to dinner parties with Jan and asking what Jan thinks of John's sexuality, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is interesting, you know, that they're this great love story. And why do you think she was asking that? Like, was she just confused or? Well, she mentioned this to Paul too, and Paul uh, rejected that. Yeah, you know, he but he, yeah, Paul was the one that was telling me that through the years Yoko would suggest that about him. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. There was always the rumor about John Lennon and Brian Epstein, right? They went on this Spanish vacation, yeah. and supposedly maybe something happened, which Jan asked about during the interview, right? Yeah, I just thought that was interesting that this is in the eighties. Yoko still confused but in your book you say that both Jan and Paul are just like no well it's just I think Jan is probably like 
who knows, maybe. Yeah. Paul is like an emphatic no. And he, the reason <laughs> is that he was often in the room when they were yeah. having, having, you know, having yeah, sex yeah. with girls yeah, and yeah. They, all through the 60s. You know, you can imagine all the things <laughs> that were involved in. Yeah. Um, but uh, so he doesn't, you know, he probably would know firsthand. Yeah. Something about it. No. But, you know, sexuality is a weird thing. Who knows? We don't know. No. You know. Yeah. And we may never know. But so. He's definitely a mercurial person in all kinds of other ways. He's open. He seems to have wanted to have deep relationships with men, you know, that could be just about a closeness. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I found that interesting that Yoko's still trying to understand John at that point too, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, their relationship is it was a pretty strange one and, you know, may not have been conventional in that way. Did you learn anything about the John Yoko relationship? Well, not really. I mean, all I know is that, um, I mean, she was doing drugs too. And when you have like two kind of like wealthy, insular, you know, private drug addicts, you know, living in a pretty eccentric lifestyle towards the end, you know, nobody likes to talk about the, um, Lives of John Lennon book, which is a you know a scurrilous uh, yeah, yeah. book about John Lennon, and I I get that it's scurrilous, but it's also like if you read the opening chapter of that, which is all about their lifestyle in Dakota, it's pretty brutal. You know what I mean? It's it's like a it's very strange. You know, it's a strange lifestyle they're living, and there's drugs involved, and they're kind of messed up and 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 um, eccentric. And so it's just hard to know how intimate their relationship was or, you know, how much what we were seeing in the photographs and were led to believe by our, our vision of them yeah. as this incredibly loving couple. We don't know to what degree that is real, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. we don't know or what it or how real it is or whether it reflects exactly what they were. I mean, different people will say different things, but, and I don't know, but, um, we do know that they liked the way they were reflected in the media. Yeah. And it made me think, you know, is it was their publicness, you know, um, part of their relationship? You know, was it? Oh, I definitely think so. Maybe Pang talks about that, how they loved their love yeah. story. She said somebody would come and they'd love to, to talk about their relationship. I, I sort of have come to the conclusion that it, it's not what we think it is. There is a deep bond there, but it's also not what they portrayed it to be, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, that's, um, that's one I can't solve, but we can speculate about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I know, but you know, but it was a powerful image. Yes. The two of them. And, uh, it's one I grew up with, you know, my mom was a big Beatles fan and I remember a double fantasy around the house and the Rolling Stone book that came out about John Lennon afterwards, you know, they put, they put together a big pendium mm -hmm. of stuff and, um, you know, beyond even the magazine issue. And my mom had that growing up. And so I always saw them as this like, you know, great love affair, you know? Yeah. So uh, do you know anything about the Paul and Linda relationship? Have you ha heard anything about that one? No, but that's what I'm very interested in. I was just thinking about this the other day, like, uh, you know, it's, it was, it's been suggested to me, oh, you should write a Paul McCartney biography. And I think enough books have been written about Paul and I'm not sure how fascinating he is as a life from beginning to end. I mean, there are aspects of it that I, I, I'm interested in, but I thought, well, you know, a book I would love to read yeah. would be a book about Paul and Linda. That would be a cool book to read and about Wings and about the history of Wings and the history of that relationship. 
You know, oh, that would be wonderful. Write that book, please. Yeah, well, we'll see how Paul feels. But, uh, you know, I, I think that because it's so wrapped up in the creation of these records and it would be an excuse to revisit these records and to address them as works of art made by a couple. The, yeah. the untold love affair. I mean, it's like, you know, John and Yoko, we know about. Paul and Linda, we have only the vaguest kind of understanding of their marriage and what it was and, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe it's because people just intuit that it's normal and therefore not interesting. You know, that well, they had a. I don't think it's normal. A, you know, I don't, because yeah. Paul's not normal and Linda's not normal. You know what I mean? Like, if we're talking about one of the great artists, I mean, that's interesting in itself. You know, maybe their yeah, normalcy yeah, yeah. helped him be a, a, an artist, you know? I mean, I talk, yeah, about, yeah. I talk about Paul and Linda a lot in the REM episode that I did. Like, I did a three part episode. So, you know, I've got. T- I've got all the information I know. This is not to plug my own podcast because most no, of I like it. But I would, I'm going to listen. I would to listen it. to yeah. that, and also I did an egg pod on uh, Wings Wildlife, and I chose that because I like Wings Wildlife. But also, you know, I had to talk about Paul and Linda at that time as well. So, yeah, yeah. I hope you do this book. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is really, really important information i think to understanding the beatles story how you know this powerful relationship helped create some of the mythology and it's important to know what's behind that it's been yeah, fascinating absolutely. context context yeah, yeah. okay so thank okay. you joe you've been a joy to speak oh, with good. so thank you Concludes my conversation with Joe Hagen. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As I mentioned at the beginning, Joe and I had an additional conversation after we stopped recording, and I wanted to share some of the relevant points that he made at that time. So, um, as he mentioned, he interviewed McCartney, and uh, he he conveyed a little bit more of that conversation to me. He said that uh, McCartney not only admitted that it was very painful for him to read the Lennon Remembers Rolling Stone article. But uh, he also said that he was the one that successfully lobbied for Ringo Starr to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Apparently, he pushed it until they finally let Ringo in, which is lovely. And I love that Paul wanted that for Ringo. But while on the subject of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I just wanted to say a couple of things. Now, Joe and I discussed Paul's own experiences with his induction into the Hall of Fame, as well as Stella's iconic shirt that said, it's about fucking time, which was rad. And the fact that Paul called her up onto stage, I think reflects that this was also his opinion. But I just wanted to say that I wish Paul had not attended the ceremony at all. I know these things can matter to people, and obviously it did matter to Paul because he fought to get Ringo into it as a solo artist. But uh, what the hell kind of club won't induct Paul McCartney into it? Uh, I'm not quite sure what kind of a club that is. Doesn't that just invalidate the whole thing? Anyways, and the fact that they waited so long to induct McCartney as a solo artist and so many other incredible artists completely delegitimizes them. I think the fact that he attended um, 
for his induction eight years too late gave legitimacy to what I see as a bit of a mean girls of rock and roll clique of men. And I personally am thrilled to see their influence waning massively these days. Anyway, Joe and I discussed a couple of anecdotes from his book, and I wanted to read them here. I hope he doesn't mind. I think they just clarify what we were discussing. The first excerpt is about when Wenner met Lennon and Ono for the first time in the spring of 1970, and they went to see Let It Be together. So this is what Hagen writes. John Lennon was in a movie theater crying. The image of Paul singing from the rooftop in the final 10 minutes had set him off. Jan Wenner shifted in his seat. In the darkness of a tiny movie house in San Francisco, the Beatle, Wenner's hero, whose iconic spectacles and nose adorned the first issue of his rock and roll newspaper, Rolling Stone, had tears running down his cheeks as light flickered off his glasses. And next to him was Yoko Ono, the bete noir of Beetledom, raven hair shrouding her porcelain face, also weeping. It was a Saturday afternoon in the spring of 1970, and John and Yoko and Jan and his wife, Jane Wenner, were watching the final scenes of Let It Be, the documentary about the Beatles' acrimonious recording session for their last album. John and Yoko were deep into primal scream therapy, their emotions raw and close to the surface, and the image of a bearded Paul McCartney singing from the rooftop of Apple Records against a cold London wind was too much to bear. For Wenner, the 24-year-old wonder boy of the new rock press who worshipped the Beatles as passionately as any kid in America, this was a dream sitting here in the dark, wiping away his own tears at the twilight of the greatest band of all time, elbow to elbow with the most famous person in the world, for God's sake. And it's just the four of us in the center of an empty theater, marveled Wenner, all kind of huddled together, and John is crying his eyes out. The other anecdote we discussed took place in 1974. Hagen writes, In 1974, Wenner received a mysterious cream-colored envelope in the mail, care of Johann Wiener, and postmarked Los Angeles, California. Inside was a single Polaroid picture of John Lennon and Paul McCartney hanging out on a garden patio with friends, Linda McCartney hoisting a pool stick, Keith Moon in shorts and Roman sandals, and May Pang, Lennon's then-lover, holding McCartney's daughter Mary on her lap. On the white stripe below the image, dated Palm Sunday, 1974, was the message, How Do You Sleep? This was a reference to the John Lennon song from 1971's Imagine, a notorious attack on McCartney in which Lennon snipes, The only thing you'd done was yesterday. Now the message was being repurposed to attack Jan Wenner. Wenner said he never understood the precise meaning of the picture, but it was obvious it was a bitter joke from the Beatle he had betrayed. Now, if we dig into the anecdote uh, from 1974, according to Hagen, Paul mentioned how he was surprised when John greeted him with a hug, and it stuck with him. I find it a little odd, because in the Hunter Davies um, official biography of the Beatles, uh, written in 67 and 68, Lennon discusses how the Beatles have started the practice of hugging each other in 1967, and one can see how close they are in Get Back. So I'm not quite sure what to make of Paul's anecdote. Perhaps the hugging phase uh, between the Beatles was incredibly short and just didn't go past the summer of love, or perhaps the bitterness of the breakup um, erased it from Paul's memory. Or perhaps it was just that he was surprised to find Lennon so open and affectionate after some of the barbs that they had traded, although they had actually seen each other in 1972. 
And as an aside, in one version of Maeve Behang's account, when Paul shows up, John goes and hides in his uh, his closet because he's not sure he can face McCartney. So I think this probably was a very tense meeting between the men. And uh, it's lovely that Lennon broke it with a hug. The one thing I do conclude from the hug story is how influential Lennon's thinking was to McCartney. All these years later, McCartney still remembered and still was behaving in the way that John had said was the right way to behave. And of course, the same thing goes for Lennon. The fact that Ono chose to contact McCartney when she was desperate to reconcile with Lennon, and she was desperate to reconcile with Lennon because he was getting much closer to May Pang at that time, reflects the influence that McCartney wielded over Lennon. Clearly, Paul's matchmaking exercise meant a lot to John. And I think that speaks to how influential Paul was to John's thinking and how much these men influenced each other in terms of their lives, their behaviors, what they did. Yoko did ask Paul to do this. He did intercede that he passed this message on to John and that John and Yoko did reconcile. And I'm sure in some part it had to do with Paul giving John tacit approval that this was a good thing to do. Or at least that he he supported this, you know. Anyways, uh, that's it. Um, there is a lot more that we could talk about, about 1974. Why Yoko went to Paul, beyond the fact that she knew that John would listen to Paul, is another matter. Uh, I think that uh, she had multiple reasons for doing this, many of which were very clever. But this is, uh, this is a discussion for a different day. That period in 1974-75 is extremely complex and deserves a deeper dive that I will definitely do at a different time. So I guess that's it. I just want to thank Joe again for being such a wonderful guest. If you're enjoying this podcast, which is female-owned, by the way, female-owned, female-run, please consider leaving it a five-star review or rating or give it a shout-out on social or you can follow it on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook under One Sweet Dream Podcast. Also, a delightful and tenacious listener suggested that I start a Patreon account, so I did. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.